As far as symbolism goes, this one was pretty on the nose. The time was November 1880, and the place was the old Pueblo itself. The Iron Horse had reached Tucson eight months earlier to great acclaim and fanfare. Most of the people at the time had celebrated, rightly believing that this was the start of a brand new era for the 104-year-old town, though they couldn't have known how right they actually were. But on this particular fall day, as the Southern Pacific locomotive steamed its way across the tracks, it would encounter the very ideal of the world that it was in the process of replacing. I don't have exact details, but for some reason, two freight wagons happened to be at the wrong place at the wrong time. Steam belching from the top, the Southern Pacific locomotive ran smack dab into these two wagons, killing the attached mules while reducing the wagons and their freight into mere splinters. While this is a tragedy in and of itself, what it symbolized made it into something worth recording here. Indeed, something worth starting off an entire episode with. Because the two wagons in question belonged to none other than Tolly, Ochoa, and company. Before the arrival of the railroad, they, and others like them, had for decades built a fortune freighting in and out the necessary goods that kept Tucson supplied. The company owned hundreds of thousands of dollars in freighting equipment and employed hundreds of men. But the train running roughshod over their wagons did literally what the iron horse was doing to the company figuratively. Tolly, Ochoa, and company charged anywhere between 5.5 and 14 cents per pound for trips that could take upwards 20 days. Meanwhile, the Southern Pacific Railroad charged a cent and a half per pound and could run between Yuma and Tucson in a single day. So when that locomotive obliterated those freight wagons on that fall morning, it was just the physical manifestation of what everyone was beginning to realize. The Iron Horse was here and nothing would ever be the same. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you are listening to AZ, The History of Arizona. Episode 117, The Messiah of Civilization. Welcome back, everyone. Last week, we talked about the culmination of the fight over where to place the territorial capital. After more than a decade of contention and rumor following the capital's removal back to Prescott, Phoenix finally managed to capture the prize, mainly through bribing legislators with a brand new building, good winter weather, and some discreet cash payments. With that all sorted out, I want to turn our attention today to something that I've been tangentially mentioning here and there, but not doing any justice toward at all. That is, the rise of the railroad and livestock industries in Arizona throughout the 1880s. Now, I embark on this little economics lesson mainly because it's actually going to help us set up some of the dominoes that we will need to topple in the near future. And here I'm speaking specifically about the Pleasant Valley War, which some have managed to distill down to a simple livestock issue. It's nowhere near being that neat and tidy like much of history, but we can't ignore the range economic factors surrounding that conflict. Also, I should point out that the coming of the railroad was a major event in the West. 
Suddenly, towns in the middle of the desert weren't isolated places accessible only by long slogs and coaches that were uncomfortable at best and beset by raiding Apache at worst. You'll recall from last week that arguments about having the capital somewhere that was connected to the railroad carried a lot of weight in the legislature's considering removal, and that Prescott actually built a spur line going up to connect with the main line in Prescott Junction, the modern town of Seligman, to head off just those kind of arguments. Speaking of, that spur line was masterminded by a 32-year-old streetcar promoter from New York named Tom Bullock. Prescott citizens raised $300,000 for this line, but there was a nifty little stipulation that Bullock had to get the line to Prescott by midnight on December 31st, 1886, or he would face a $1,000 per mile fine. It turns out that betting on whether Bullock would make it or not became somewhat popular in Prescott, especially as cattle ranchers, who were angry at the line going through their grazing lands, were in the habit of stampeding their cattle through the construction camp. Still, the rail line inched closer, and those who bet against it also began to try their hand at sabotage to improve their odds. As the deadline neared, the odds of Bullock completing the line was something like 20 to 1. If state historian Marshall Trimble is to be believed, the line made it to Prescott with only five minutes to spare. Governor Conrad Zulick was on hand to drive a golden spike into a rail that had been painted red, white, and blue. Unfortunately, the Bullock line had been a haphazard affair, and it showed. The engines were too small and could only pull like a half dozen cars at a time. There was no turntable in Prescott, so the train would have to run backward to get back to Prescott Junction. The line was constantly being washed out and was in a state of disrepair all the time. Prescott was connected to the wider world now, but it was a sorry connection indeed. It wouldn't be until the 1890s that a new, better line would be put into place. But now I'm getting ahead of the story. In fact, just talking about Bullock's line is getting way ahead of the main narrative too. We last finished with the railroad back in episode 78, when the Southern Pacific had beaten its rival, the Texas and Pacific, into Arizona by clandestinely crossing the Colorado River in 1877. You might recall this is when they were building a bridge in the middle of the night, but dropped a rail alerting the local garrison, a total of three guys, that something was up. The Southern Pacific made it to Yuma, but it wasn't until the next year, 1878, that it started heading westward. Again, we covered this in episode 78, but by May 1879, the mostly Chinese workforce had made it only as far as Casa Grande, before soaring summer temperatures and a lack of railroad ties held up the project. I should also like to insert a tiny little correction here. As back then, I said that the Chinese were paid only 50 cents a day, half of what an American was. Turns out that I had misread my sources. See, a Chinese laborer actually earned a dollar a day, which was 50 cents less than an American worker. So there was still a horrible disparity in pay, but at least it wasn't as bad as I originally thought. Anyway, the lack of rails was an ongoing problem, and it stopped forward progress at Casa Grande for the rest of 1879. Meanwhile, something of a tent city popped up with workers just 
waiting around while the Southern Pacific did its darndest to line up investors and money to keep on plugging. According to Trimble, it was actually the news of the silver strikes at Tombstone that really gave the railroad its final incentive to start going again. So on January 20th, 1880, with 300 Chinese workers, the rails began to be laid toward the southeast. The going was relatively easy, with the terrain being mostly flat and the weather mild, with the exception of a freak snowstorm after they had just gotten started. And I do love mentioning such snowfalls in southern Arizona as they do happen, though rarely, and are a chance to prove to all my non-native listeners out there that we have settings other than scorching. The main problem with building this segment of the rail was a chronic shortage of rails. As state historian Thomas Sheridan points out, between 1879 and 1880, the United States saw the building of 11,000 miles of railroads. So that meant competition for steel among the various lines was fierce. More than a few times, the boss on scene would wire the upper-ups with the Southern Pacific to say that work had come to a halt because they had ran out of rails again. However delayed it might have been, the railroad slowly, ever so slowly, advanced on Tucson. By February, a veritable army of graders, again mostly Chinese, were parading through Tucson with shovels and picks. By March, a campground for the rail workers was set up on Tucson's racetrack. Finally, on March 17, 1880, the rail line between Yuma and Tucson was complete. And with this momentous event achieved, every citizen prepared themselves for a good old party. Early state historian James H. McClintock describes the enthusiasm for the project being pent up until March 20th when the formal reception was to be held. That's when a locomotive carrying California dignitaries, including the Southern Pacific's president, came rolling into the old Pueblo. Said railroad president was presented with a spike, made from silver taken from Tombstone's tough nut mine, by none other than Estevan Ochoa, who didn't know yet that the train was going to obliterate his business literally and figuratively. Later, there was a banquet held on Pennington Street, where there were drinks, speeches, food, speeches, more drinks, more food, and more speeches. One of the prime toasters was none other than Charles Poston, the father of Arizona, who proclaimed, quote, The chariot of fire has arrived in Tucson on its way across the continent. We welcome the railroad as the messiah of civilization, and we welcome the road builders as the benefactors of mankind. End quote. If there's one thing you can say about Poston, is that he was always good for a florid speech or two. As part of the spirit of enthusiasm that pervaded the day, the mayor of Tucson, Robert N. Leatherwood, began sending telegrams to the President of the United States, Arizona Governor John C. Fremont, who probably wasn't home, and the mayors of other important cities to let them know that Tucson had finally been connected to the rest of the country. While he was sending off telegrams left and right, he bought into the rapturous feelings of the crowd around him when someone suggested that they should really let none other than the Pope himself know of the achievement. And Leatherwood did. The message, which some say that the mayor wrote, others that Poston wrote, is supposed to have read as follows. Mm-hmm. To His Holiness, the Pope of Rome, Italy. 
The mayor of Tucson begs the honor of reminding your holiness that this ancient and honorable pueblo was founded by the Spaniards under the sanction of the church more than three centuries ago, and to inform your holiness that a railroad from San Francisco, California, now connects us with the entire Christian world. R.N. Leatherwood, Mayor. The funny end to this story is that a few minutes later, a quote-unquote reply was said to have arrived that read, quote, his Holiness the Pope acknowledges with appreciation receipt of your telegram informing him that the ancient city of Tucson at last has been connected by rail with the outside world and sends his benediction. But for his own satisfaction would ask, where in hell is Tucson? End quote. Now, it's highly probable that the mayor, swept up as he was by the celebration, really did send a telegram to the Vatican. However, the reply from the Holy See is definitely nothing more than a fun, maybe mildly blasphemous, joke by several men surrounding the mayor. I will add, though, that Trimble does say in 1955, on the 75th anniversary of the railroad reaching Tucson, the Pope actually did send a congratulatory message to the town. Now, though it had managed to cut its way across southern Arizona and was the railroad line, the Southern Pacific could not rest on its laurels. Because in the early days, no one really was interested in getting people to Arizona, but rather through Arizona. The real mission was securing the line to California, which Sheridan describes the best when he says, quote, Arizona was little more than an unpleasant obstacle a losing proposition on the road to riches along the Pacific coast. The giants of industry drove their crews and dragged their construction cars across the Arizona landscape, not because they thought they could make a profit there, but because they wanted to suckle in the land of milk and honey on the other side of the Colorado River. A railroad whose line ended at the Arizona border had no future. California was always the prize. End quote. I know that statement may rub many longtime Arizona residents the wrong way, but it was the prevailing attitude at the time, a time that predated air conditioners, I might add. But this also being the age of cutthroat capitalism meant that getting one line across to Arizona wasn't enough for one railroad company. They wanted all the lines. The Southern Pacific had managed to box out its competition for the Southern All-Weather Route along the 32nd Parallel, which was good. But if you can stretch your memories back as far as episode 25, we talked about Congress in the 1850s approving various rail surveys, including a route along the 35th Parallel, which would take them across the northern part of Arizona. The Southern Pacific had not locked this route up, which was bad for them. For various reasons, including a very nasty civil war, the northern route mapped out by the likes of Sitgreaves and Whipple and championed by Secretary of War Jefferson Davis had never happened. In the late 1860s, President Andrew Johnson had chartered the Atlantic and Pacific Railroad to build a line stretching from Missouri to California that would take it across Arizona along the 35th parallel. The railroad had even been granted 40 alternate sections of land across territories and 20 alternate sections across states, as just an added incentive. However, the Atlantic and Pacific Railroad was more on paper than in real life, and by the time that the railroad finally folded up for good in 1875, 
it had managed to lay less than 400 miles of rails, so it got nowhere close to Arizona. But the land granted to the Atlantic and Pacific was too tempting for someone not to grab it, and so in 1880, we find another scrappy young railroad coming in to finish the job. This was the Atchison, Topeka, and Santa Fe line, usually just called the Santa Fe, which had been started in Kansas in 1859. Unlike many of its rivals at the time, it had grown slowly and carefully, but eventually it claimed dominance in Texas and then stretched into New Mexico. Then, and this is important, in January 1880, the Santa Fe struck a deal with the St. Louis and San Francisco Railway. The St. Louis and San Francisco, or Frisco as it was known, had taken over the now-defunct Atlantic and Pacific Railroad, and it was willing to make a deal. In exchange for the Santa Fe granting access to rails in New Mexico and building some more down there, the Frisco let them buy half of the Atlantic and Pacific stock, meaning that the Santa Fe was cleared to build a railroad between New Mexico and California. I should stop here and stress exactly what a daunting task that was. As Sheridan states, though the Southern Pacific had to lay track across a very, very hot desert, it had the advantage of going through established towns like Yuma and Tucson, with some smaller communities such as Maricopa and Casa Grande already in existence too. The Santa Fe had no such luck. The last real survey had been done nearly 30 years before, and as McClintock points out, any settlements along the route were small pockets of people living at stations along the old Beale Road, which was one of the routes that had included camels once upon a time. There were some thriving settlements along the Colorado River on the far west end of the state, plus the failing-to-thrive Mormon colonies along the Little Colorado River. But to be blunt, there was nothing that Americans would consider civilization along the entire route the train needed to go. And so it's to the railroad that you can credit the founding of most of the places we know today. Seligman, Ash Fork, Holbrook, even a certain corner in Winslow, Arizona. But before any of that, first, a proper up-to-date survey had to be done if the train was going to go anywhere. So a party of five wagons and 21 men were dispatched from New Mexico in early 1880 to update the maps, as it were, and find the route for the railroad. This group was headed by a man named Louis Kingman, who would be the eponym for the modern city of Kingman at the junction of I-40 and US-93, known best to me as the last town to stop at before heading on towards Las Vegas. Making their way carefully, Kingman and his men were able to finalize the route up to the junction of the Little Colorado and Puerco Rivers, known as Horsehead Crossing. After that, they made a beeline across Arizona for the Colorado River, hoping to find a suitable crossing point before it became too intolerably hot. They then did an about-face in May 1880 and worked backward, laying out the route until they reached Horsehead Crossing again. In the meantime, graders had already set to work leveling the terrain, though the going wasn't exactly great. The native peoples of the area were not all that enthused to have the iron horse running through land that had been there since time immemorial, and made a few attempts at intimidation. The Laguna people were known to pull up survey stakes just to slow the progress down, and things were even worse in Arizona proper where the Navajos, in McClintock's words, were nasty along the railroad route. 
armed and sometimes ready for trouble, they did pick off a few of the railroad workers, but apparently not in enough numbers to cause any sort of mass retaliation. Still, the railroad pressed forward, across the Colorado Plateau. But, this being Arizona, it's not the Amerindians you have to watch out for, but the often cruel Mother Nature. During the winter of 1880-1881, the heavy snowfall brought construction to a halt, while heavy rains during the following summer were continually washing away whole sections of the recently laid rails. Still, in 1881, the Santa Fe, doing business as the Atlantic and Pacific, had made it to Horsehead Crossing. And here they contracted with a man named John W. Young to help provide rail ties for the project. And I bring up Young for a few different reasons. First, he was one of the sons of the Mormon prophet Brigham Young, which is always a fun connection to make. Second, Young would help found a new town just west of Horsehead Crossing, which in October 1882 would be named in honor of a leading engineer of the Atlantic and Pacific Railroad. His name? H.R. Holbrook. And third, Young is going to pop up again in our story, both when we talk about Flagstaff and when we get into the territory's burgeoning cattle industry. But before we move on, I will pass along that after its founding, Holbrook acquired quite an unsavory reputation. McClintock says that, quote, it was a place surpassed in wickedness only by Dodge City, end quote, while Trimble remarks that until 1914, it was the only county seat in the entire country without a church. After moving on past Horsehead Crossing, soon to be Holbrook, the Santa Fe managed to make it to the now-defunct Mormon settlement of Brigham City by December 1881. If you feel like going back, we covered Brigham City and the reasons that it was now defunct back in episode 80. The arrival of the railroad was also the start of a new settlement, just a stone's throw away from the failed Mormon colony, which was named in honor of the general manager of the railroad, one General Edward F. Winslow. But everything that had come before was a mere prelude to the real challenge, Canyon Diablo. Sitting right in the way between the new town of Winslow and the next stop along the San Francisco Peaks was a 225-foot-deep, 550-foot-wide gash in the Colorado Plateau. It had been a severe obstacle for Lieutenant Whipple when he and his company had been surveying in 1853, and it's from Whipple that it acquired its diabolical name. Construction literally screeched to a halt for more than six months while engineers tried to figure out how to best cross this very intimidating hole in the ground. And while they were tackling this problem, a settlement built up around the camp that was also named Canyon Diablo. And if McClintock thought Holbrook was bad, Canyon Diablo must have seemed like hell itself. Trimble remarks that, at its peak, more men died from gunfights, robberies, and murders in that one town than in Dodge City, Abilene, and Tombstone combined. Out of the 35 graves in the nearby Boot Hill, 34 of them were men who died with their boots on, he notes. The lone outlier? A prostitute who had her throat slit. I think my favorite anecdote is that the settlement's first peace officer was sworn in at 3 p.m., 
and had been killed by 8 p.m. Finally, though, maybe just to get away from that place, the engineers decided to build an 11-span bridge that would be slowly built out until the canyon was safely crossed. This was finally achieved on July 1st, 1882, and it was instantly considered one of the great feats of railroad engineering at the time. From there, they kept pushing west, running along what is today Flagstaff, which I will get into in a future episode, I promise, and then they headed the familiar route that I-40 roughly follows today. Even this section of the railroad proved challenging, as Johnson Canyon, roughly halfway between current Williams and Ash Fork, curved so much that the railroad had to build two bridges to cross it and carve a 328-foot tunnel through a promontory of rock. Just to give you a scale of the challenge, going through Johnson Canyon cost the railroad $75,000 per mile, compared to the $10,000 per mile that the rest of the line cost. Also, as a complete and total side note, apparently there is a nice hiking trail that actually takes you up to this abandoned railroad tunnel, which is definitely something to add to the old hiking bucket list if you're in northern Arizona. And just to wrap up things narratively, the line would go through modern Seligman, which would first be known as Prescott Junction, because this is where the Bullock Line would eventually connect in a few years down the road. Now, if you look at a map, you'll also notice that the rail line is kind of dipping and undulating, much like I-40 does today. This was due to both the topography they were cutting through and because they had to hit certain watering holes, otherwise the locomotives would not have enough steam to be able to keep chugging across Arizona. Finally, on June 8th, 1883, the line arrived at the Colorado River, at the narrow canyon known as the Needles. But getting across the river itself was the next engineering challenge. We've seen before that in the age before the dams, the Colorado was a shifting, unpredictable river, and driving piles into its continually muddy and moving bed was a laborious task. At first, they tried a barge to hold the pile driver, but it turned out to be too small. So they built a bigger barge, but it kept getting pushed by the current. Then they tried bolting the pile driver to a railroad car, which was taken to the edge of the bridge under construction. And that worked, until the Colorado, fed from high runoff in the Rockies, came roaring down the channel and took out a 400-foot span. It's at this point that you should hear in your head that old Monty Python bit about the castle falling into the swamp. But finally, on August 3rd, 1883, the bridge was completed, and the next week a grand ceremony was held, including the customary driving of a golden spike to mark the accomplishment. They had done it. They had reached California and left behind a string of settlements and stations between Chambers and Kingman that bore the name of an engineer or an official from the Atlantic and Pacific or Santa Fe railroads. Unfortunately, this is where they found out that the rug had been pulled out from underneath their feet. We now have to return to the Southern Pacific Railroad, which was not happy at all that another line was trying to tap into the lucrative California market. So while the Atlantic and Pacific had been building across Arizona, the Southern Pacific had extended a line up from Mojave to Needles just to block its competition from being able to head west. 
Then, the head of the Southern Pacific actually joined forces with his one-time arch-rival, the head of the Texas and Pacific, to buy half the stock in the Frisco line. This gave them two seats on the board of the partnership between the Frisco and Santa Fe lines, the very partnership that determined the course of the Atlantic and Pacific. The reasons for this coup are all parochial and involve stopping both the Frisco and the Santa Fe from muscling in on territory monopolized by the Southern Pacific and the Texas and Pacific. Thirdly outmaneuvered, the Atlantic and Pacific, that is the Santa Fe controlling it, had to accept the Southern Pacific's generous offer to freight cargo from Needles to San Francisco. Without being able to reach California, the Atlantic and Pacific was just a weight around the necks of its parent companies. There wasn't enough settlement in northern Arizona to justify the rail line or to freight things there. Between 1883 and 1897, long after the issue was solved by the way, the Atlantic and Pacific Railroad would be a $14 million money sink. One railroad expert commented that it was, quote, a wretched road running as it does through an alkaline desert where even the water for the locomotives has to be transported by rail, end quote. To break this logjam, the Santa Fe decided that it was time to do some horse trading. Much earlier, it had managed to build a line through New Mexico that eventually hit Benson, Fairbank, Patagonia, and Nogales in Arizona before it went down into Mexico to hit the port town of Guaymas. In the words of Trimble, the Southern Pacific Railroad wanted that line all to itself in the worst way. So, a little trade was arranged. The Santa Fe would hand over its route to Guaymas, and in return, the Atlantic and Pacific would be able to lease the route from Needles to Mojave. This deal was completed in 1884, and four years later, the Santa Fe was able to finally have its own line completed to both San Francisco and Los Angeles. And this essentially broke the stranglehold the Southern Pacific had over the California rail traffic. Now, the Santa Fe nearly bankrupted itself trying to do all of this and had to be reorganized, but in the coming years, the rail traffic would eventually pay for the cost many times over. Now, there is much more to say about the railroads, and I'm going to leave most of that for a future episode. I'm also going to leave off talking about cattle and sheep for a future episode, too. Because next week is Halloween, one of my favorite holidays. So I figure that, like last year, I would spend another half hour recounting some of the strange, weird, mysterious, and downright spooky stories from across the state. And if you have something along those lines that you would like me to cover, please reach out to me on Facebook and Twitter. My handle is at azhistorypod, or email me at david at azhistorypodcast.com. I have a few ideas myself, but I'm interested in any and all suggestions. After we get Halloween out of our system, we'll turn our attention back to the economics of the late 1880s, which will set our course going forward. As always, I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you've been listening to AZ, the history of Arizona. Goodbye.